Hello. Hi, I'm Steve. Um, thanks. Um, yeah, this is my second time talking. So, um, and I, you know, I don't take the the privilege of being able to be up here talking at you uh, for granted. So, um, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, the origin of this talk was uh, one night I was listening to a podcast while I was doing the dishes, and I was arm deep in soap suds and um, they were telling a story in the podcast and it just had a, a real sort of, um, it was a real moment. Like I was like, oh, wow, that's that's amazing. So that's where this has come from. So I'll get to that point later. So a teaser for what's to come. Um, I've called it uh, No Compromise, Wisdom and the Law, um, which is kind of a bit of a dull title. But anyway, all right, on we go. Uh, I was raised in a Christian family. Um, but I made the decision that uh, my faith was my own at the age of 17. Uh, this was back in the mid-90s. Um, what a time to be alive. Um, a great time. And like most people my age, I was very into music. Uh, I listened to the Beastie Boys, to Public Enemy, to Pearl Jam, Nirvana, to Keith Green. Uh, wait. <laughs> Keith Green? Um, it's... Uh, you can't quite get the full effect with, the, with the, the darkness. But anyway, he's got a beautiful uh, corduroy jacket. and Anyway, but at <laughs> St. Hilary's Anglican Church in the 90s, everyone was into Keith Green. Uh, I was introduced to his music at a St. Hilary's camp called Mega Camp. Did I mention it was the 90s? And if you're not familiar, uh, Keith is like uh, Christian Elton John. Uh, he's got a beautiful, soulful voice, a big piano, and bigger hair. Um, if you've never listened to Keith, I would highly recommend it. Uh, he's very 70s, 80s. Uh, he can be quite goofy at times, uh, but he can also bring you to tears. Uh, his faith was so pure and heartfelt and inspiring. Um, among the youth at St. Hilary's, Keith's biography was required reading. It was called No Compromise. Uh, and it told the story of his journey from uh, like a mystical free love hippie uh, to a committed Christian to a hugely influential recording artist and a ministry founder and then to his untimely death in a plane crash at only age 28. Um, as the book's title suggests, Keith's faith, faith was one of no compromise, although he certainly compromised on the type legibility <laughs> in that uh, metallic font. And the author's name, but anyway, all right, no, no judgment. Um, Keith loved the Lord and he went at it hard. Um, his faith really came across, though, as all or nothing. Uh, it was all sheep and goats, light and dark. Um, you felt like you had to get on board or get out of the way and there was no room for doubt and no time for questions. Um, now, it might be a little bit unfair to him. I mean, he was a, a great man. But this uncompromising um, black and white mindset was very common in my social circles of the 90s. Um, he probably wasn't ex as extreme as like the purity culture that w happened in the 90s, which is probably a rabbit hole we don't have time to go down today. But, but his message of no compromise was this powerful rallying cry um, about engaging and overcoming this fallen and dark world. And as a young Christian, I really liked this. Um, the simplicity, the clear lines, it was really comforting because complexity can be confusing. Um, but you know, ambiguity can be confusing. But conversely, this simplicity could also be confusing. 
um, because life isn't simple and the Bible certainly wasn't simple. And you know, people at the time would say, oh, look, just trust God and follow what the Bible says. But what did the Bible say? Because when I read it, I found many, many parts to be impossible to make sense of. And it would only get harder when like, those who were hostile to Christianity would trawl through usually the Old Testament, usually Leviticus, and ask why some parts were still important and why others were completely ignored. And um, at the time, I didn't know. I didn't have an answer. Um, And so as I continued on my Christian walk, I sort of settled down with the idea that when Jesus came, all those confusing bits, uh, they were all wiped away and we started again. Um, So you know the Sermon on the Mount? Um, (laughs) Jesus' iconic phrasing of, you have heard it said, but I tell you, it's like Jesus saying, I'm here now, things have changed, um, which, thank you, Jesus, you know, he sees what's happening. And so I was sort of wondering, well, why didn't the ancient Israelites do that? But it turns out they did. And so last year when I was listening to this podcast, a Bible project podcast, we were going through the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and while reading Numbers, oh no, Numbers, here we go, <laughs> Not numbers, you're not going to talk about numbers, eh? The most boring book in the Bible. Although sidebars, something I learnt, in Hebrew tradition, uh, the book of Numbers is called Bamidbar, which translates as in the wilderness, which is where the whole story takes place. And it was changed to numbers uh, when it was being translated into Greek because there are two censuses, two sensi that happen in the book. And so for some reason that became the name of the book instead of in the wilderness. And no offence to any accountants present, but I think In the Wilderness is a much better title than Numbers. But anyway, on we go. So in Numbers, there were these two stories that turned my perception of the Old Testament upside down. Um, Oh, okay. Really low contrast. Sorry about that. In the first story, the Israelites are in the wilderness, of course, and are approaching the first anniversary of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And we read about the laws given to Moses concerning the practice of Passover. So I'm just going to read from, if you want to follow along, it's Numbers 9, verses 1 to 11. Uh, And I'll just read that now. Okay, the Passover. Uh, The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. He said, Have the Israelites celebrate the Passover at the appointed time. Celebrate it at the appointed time, at twilight on the 14th day of this month, in accordance with all its rules and regulations. So Moses told the Israelites to celebrate the Passover, and they did so in the desert of Sinai at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. But some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day, because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. So they came to Moses and Aaron that same day and said to Moses, We have become unclean because of a dead body, but why should we be kept from presenting the Lord's offering with the other Israelites at the appointed time? Moses answered them, Wait until I find out what the Lord commands concerning you. Off he goes. And then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites... When any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or are away on a journey, business trip, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. They are to celebrate it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They are to eat the lamb together with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. 
Um, so in this story, uh, we see Passover is done as the second week of the new year, but there are all these purity laws that have been given previously. Um, and then, so someone says, well, hang on, what if I'm ritually impure during Passover? I have to go outside the camp? That doesn't seem right. There's a gap in the laws because Passover is really important and why should we be withdrawn from the community? So Moses goes to God, gets a new revelation to update the one that they just got at the start of the chapter, like the ink wasn't even dry on the parchment, and already they're going and getting an update. Um, and it, like the laws were very specific, very clear. There was no room for compromise. And then they go, oh, oh, except in this one case. All right, well, okay, you can do this. So, yeah, so the law was established, but things changed, so it was updated. Um, so that's the first story, and I could probably use that to illustrate my point, but I feel it's important to note that these, the two stories uh, are meant to be hyperlinked. One is meant to connect with the other, and in the beautiful literary design um, of the Old Testament, they're meant to reflect and reinforce each other. So when you read one, you're thinking of the other. This Passover story occurs as Israel enters the wilderness, and now this next one will happen as they're preparing to leave the wilderness and enter the Promised Land. Um, Again, it's a pretty bit more dramatic picture in high contrast. Uh, so the second story is Numbers 27, 1 to 11. So bear with me and I'll read that one as well. Okay, uh, this is called The Daughters of Zelophehad. The Daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hepha, the son of Gilead, the son of Machia, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly and said, Our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. Again, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and turn their father's inheritance over to them. Say to the Israelites, If a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to be a legal requirement for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. So, this man, Zelophehad, dies in the wilderness and has no sons, which means when Israel gets to the promised land, um, there are no sons to inherit his portion, which was, you know, like critical for the, the 12 tribes. So the daughters go to Moses and say, this isn't right. Why should we be cut off just because we're women? And this is, but this is exactly how God had instructed the Israelites to divide the land to the sons. So the daughters are bringing to the leaders the fact that there's a gap in the laws of the Torah. Um, there's a scenario that the laws don't address and the laws as currently stated will lead to injustice. Um, and God tells Moses, they're right. So in a patriarchal society, these women go directly to Moses to argue their case, which was something that was unprecedented. I reckon that's like real courage. 
And he doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't mansplain the law. He doesn't um, actually them. He goes to God and God says they are right. And I mean, so this is the, the story that, well, I was doing the dishes while listening to the podcast and I you know, had to ask Siri to pause because I was just like, well, this is not what I'd expected to find in the Old Testament. It was like a revelation. I think of the Old Testament like with Moses, with these chiseled stone tablets. To me, this is what the Old Testament was. It was static. It was unchanging. It was quite literally chiseled into rock. But here are two stories where the law is given, circumstances evolved, and the law changes. And why does it change? Because God got caught out? No, it changed because no list of laws will be complete enough to navigate all of life's complexities. We shouldn't go to the Bible expecting to find answers that will address whatever situation we find ourselves in. But that was my, that was exactly my expectation for well, probably, I mean, most of my Christian journey, if I'm being honest. And I think that that's the mindset of many Christians today. People taking one line from the Bible and planting their foot down uh, without acknowledging the context, the intent or the heart of what it was addressing. So instead, if we don't look at it as a rule book, how do we see it? Well, we should see the Bible as a book of wisdom, a book that shapes us as we spend time in it to understand God's heart for his creation. And so if that's the case, well, then with these two stories that we've just read, um, what's the wisdom in these? Uh, if it's about more than just the rules, what, it, what is it about? Well, with Passover, it turns out that the important thing about Passover wasn't about a strict adherence to a calendar, um, which you could miss with all that emphasis on timings. Do it here, do it this time, this time, this time. No, the heart of Passover is about reinforcing their identity as God's people through remembering God's deliverance, celebrating his great love and trusting in his continued provision and commitment. I mean, you know, that's really important. Um, so with the, the with the daughters, so again, as I said, this was a patriarchal society where women, you know, virtually had no say. But you look back to Genesis, and there's a story of male and female ruling over the Eden land together. God's original command was to male and female. It says in Genesis 1:26, so that they may rule. So these daughters are appear, appealing to God's core original heartbeat for partnership over male and f- of male and female over the land. So it's trying to contrast this checkbox, um, like rule-based, legalistic way of thinking with uh, like an inspired um, wisdom way of thinking where you go deeper and look beyond the checklist. Um, so that's the contrast. So the ancient Israelites had Moses a direct hotline to God, able to intercede at a moment's notice and come back with the correct answer every time. Were they lucky? Well, yes and no. We don't have Moses, it's true, but arguably we have two things that are even better, question mark. Firstly, we have the Spirit. As promised by Jesus, and the Spirit speaks to all of us, not just through one person, there's no gateway. Uh, we are, so we're not, we're not reliant on, on, a, on a superman leader. Secondly, we have each other. We have this incredible opportunity to participate in this thing called community. We get to live life with those around us 
And as messy and confusing and frustrating as that can be, this is the good stuff. This is the marrow of life. We're made to be in community. We're made to be with one another. God could have given us a comprehensive and complete list of rules to live by that were true at all times for all people in all situations. But where's the fun in that? When the rules are just handed to you, you don't have to do the work. You don't have to reason, relate, empathise, show grace and understanding. This reality where we have to wrestle with ideas, uh, where we have to examine our own hearts and consciences, where we have to engage with our neighbour, it might be harder, but it's better. And the downside to this, the prescriptive model of right and wrong is that it become, can become rigid and inflexible and it can lead to black and white thinking. And what's wrong with black and white? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Are there any Collingwood supporters here? Because I... Okay, there's one. <laughs> I put that there for um, the Griffiths uh, and for C, but anyway, they're not here, so all right. At least we can... <laughs> we can offend Heather. You can offend Heather, yeah. Um, I guess you could argue that um, the black and white thinking is if you're trying to think of a positive, is that it's, it's setting a high standard. It's trying to make things clear to avoid ambiguity. Uh, it's like it's an aspirational goal. But I think black and white thinking, by its very nature, is more likely to exclude than include. It rejects more than accepts. Um, I think it raises the stakes um, in a way that is more likely to make people stumble, and then when they fall, they fall hard. Um, and it's not that we don't believe there's an ultimate truth, but black and white thinking just doesn't seem to reflect the spectrum of our reality or, or acknowledge that we're all on a journey, all on a long and winding road. So black and white thinking, no thanks. Oh, fine, beers or Um So to conclude, uh, what's my takeaway for today? Well, I guess the point I'm trying to make is don't be afraid to question Don't be afraid to go into the Bible with fresh eyes because that's what every generation has done from the ancient Israelites to the apostles to, you know, boom, up to us today in Southern Cross Community Church. Um, I used to be afraid um, to do that because I saw questioning as compromising. Um, John Collins from the Bible Project um, described the spirit of the Bible tradition that he grew up in as find the right answer and protect that answer. It's a very defensive sort of mindset, but I feel like that's the mindset that I had. I went out into the Bible thinking, right, I'm going to find the answer to this question um, without wanting to do the work. And now I feel like the questioning is the point. Going deeper is the point. Uh, And the need for interpretation and self-examination is a feature, not a bug. It keeps us humble and it forces us to work together. And the goal of interpretation isn't just about reaching a right view, it's also about undergoing a process by which your thinking develops and grows and deepens about a topic. And and I think that that process in itself, just doing that, is a big part of the goal. Um, You get something better after going through that process. Um, And so... This doesn't mean that you can't hold deep convictions about what scripture teaches, but I do think this mindset means that we need to hold our convictions with a degree of openness 
so that we're always ready to learn from others. Because in a group this size, it's likely that there will be different views on scripture. Um, but that's okay because uh, we're, what we're after is unity, not uniformity. Um, we can be a tribe built around something other than just a shared opinion because uh, we're built around Jesus, like Jesus is our core. So, you know, if we have differences of opinion, well, that's okay. And how we deal with the tension of differing views will say a lot about the sort of community that we are. Um, so as we head out into the world today, to this hostile culture we find ourselves in, with fresh challenges around every corner, I want to encourage us to spend time in the Bible, letting it shape our minds and hearts. Um, you don't have to go in with with like a, a specific goal, like just, just being in the Bible, um, letting it wash over you. Um, things you don't often jump out at you until you meditate on it and just, it's like going for a walk in a garden. Um, I think we can ask the Spirit for guidance and insight. Uh, talk and share with one another as members of a community. Like, so talking in church, in small groups, around the dinner table. I mean, there's, it's the same model that applies and, and those conversations that we can have, you know, with our family around the dinner table are just as important as those ones that we can have in church. And finally, to reach and hold our convictions, but always being ready to listen to others, to listen before speaking um, with openness and humility. Um, Or, if that's too many words, to love God and to love one another. Um, That's really, um, yeah, how we want to define our our community, how it goes about about life. Um, Yeah, so... Those were my thoughts. Thank you.